This is the Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, where you'll hear about many aspects of law in England and Wales with special guests, industry experts, and local charities. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of The Legal Lounge. If you haven't heard the shows in the first and second seasons, there's plenty of content worth a listen, with conversations and advice about divorce, injury claims and business partnerships. There are also some excellent episodes where you'll hear from local charities and learn about the amazing work they do. You can listen to these shows on your podcast app or by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this episode, Adam Hodson and Steph Merrill from the Clinical Negligence Team talk about critical care units what these units incorporate and what they're made up of. The team being the key part of these units with their experience and skills. Hi, I'm Adam. I'm uh, an Associate Solicitor in Lanyon Bowdler's Clinical Negligence Team. I'm Steph. I am a Medico Legal Assistant and I assist the solicitors with all things medical. I'm also a former critical care nurse and I've worked in the UK and also in America. We're going to draw upon your experience in that field and so you're going to tell us what it's like to be inside a critical care unit, are you not? Uh, I'm going to try. Excellent. So uh, <laughs> tell us about the history of a critical care unit, because a lot of people may have heard these terms, you know, intensive care or high dependency unit, HDU, banded around that TV and news, etc. but might know what it's all about. So take us all, all back. Where did it all start from? Okay, so as you've just said, quite a lot of people have heard of an ITU or an ICU. So that's an intensive therapy unit or an intensive care unit um, or the HDU, that's a high dependency unit. And they're generally now collectively known as a critical care unit. We've sort of moved away from the separate ITU and HDU and it's much more of a collective. So in terms of the newer units that are being built, they incorporate both the ITU and the HDU and they're essentially different levels of care. So we can, we'll come on to that shortly. But the concept of intensive care is actually celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. Oh, is it? I didn't know that. Yeah. So the, the concept arose um, actually out of the epidemic of the polio epidemic in Copenhagen and that was uh, 1952 and that resulted in many many people um, experiencing respiratory failure so I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of this sort of iron lung yeah um, there's, yeah. there's quite a famous picture isn't there where they're all it's on a ward and there's like 20 patients all lined up in beds all in iron lungs it's quite looking like they're in coffins yeah that's yeah. a very weird picture things have moved on quite a bit since then but um <laughs> yeah that's that's where the the concept of that um, extra need and that extra level of care sort of came from and then obviously it's developed since then but uh, yeah the first full-time intensive care unit was actually at uh, St Thomas's in London but like I say things have moved on quite a lot. What makes up uh, a critical care unit then? What makes the team up? I think that's a really important point that actually what does make a critical care unit is the team. I think it's you know easy to talk about equipment and and the ventilators and, and you know all that sort of stuff but essentially it's the team that run that unit is what makes the unit so they are run by anaesthetists, consultant anaesthetists and really sort of how the concept developed is that there was many more consultant anaesthetists and with the training the way that the training goes that made way for many more junior anaesthetists and they were essentially the dog's bodies that that ran the unit over 24 hours so of course when you need that level of care it doesn't stop when you get to five o'clock it doesn't stop when you get to eight o'clock at night it runs 24 hours so those clinical skills were able to really develop um, and obviously the technology has moved alongside that and developments have been made and you know huge advancements in research technology and the equipment but now 
it really has developed into a multidiscipline. So we've got specialist nurses, we've got obviously advanced nurse practitioners and the, and the critical care nurses and that skill. We've got uh, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, pharmacists, dietitians, and they're all critical care trained in terms of that level of need for the patient is quite different to other clinical areas. So for instance, you know, a physiotherapist who's working on the ward, who's working with a patient post-surgery, that's very different to someone who is sedated and on a ventilator. They also need that physiotherapy, but it's it's quite different. So you've said that obviously it's a team effort. It's it's multidisciplinary medical field all working together and banding together. And you touched upon the equipment. So there have been developments in technology over the years, but what, what sort of equipment do you guys use on a critical care unit? An obvious one is is ventilators. Um, like I said before, the the way that the critical care unit is now, we tend to have much less of the separate two separate areas of um, intensive care and high dependency. And we can talk a little bit about what those levels of care are. But the very sickest of patients might well need that mechanical ventilation. Um, the way that ventilators have changed is it's very different to how it was in terms of the, the iron lung looking pretty gruesome. Yeah. Um, it still works in terms of um, pressures and the pressure that the patient needs, but it's much more sophisticated mm. in that it works with the patient. So the patient might start to take a breath, but need a little bit of help with that. And in terms of monitoring patients as well, you know, the, the sophistication in terms of monitoring has become so much more advanced that we can make changes in real time. Okay. So in terms of, you know, nurses making changes to the ventilator settings in terms of the needs of the patient that's where the, the changes are depending on what the patient needs that's how we then plan our care um, and so yeah like I say the monitoring it's all very much in real time so it's not just a case of taking a blood pressure with a cuff every half an hour or an hour we would have invasive monitoring so you've got a catheter going into an artery and it's literally giving us a real-time blood pressure. So we can make those tweaks instantly and we can see the result of that. So the, the monitoring really is, is key. And you can, you can do things, might, I've got a very basic knowledge of medicines, so I'm probably going to show my, my lack of information here. Um, so you, you, I understand you can do quite complicated things. You can me- measure like levels of pH and stuff like that, so the acidity of, of body fluids at certain times. Is that yeah, right? the pH scale um, is a really important diagnostic tool for measuring um, acidity. So it's you know advanced the detection of digestive, respiratory, metabolic disorders massively. Tip bit of information for you. Did you know that over 100 years ago, the director of Carlsberg, the brewery, actually devised the diagnostic tool for measuring acidity, and that was the pH level. Oh, wow. I do know what it stands for, go but on. I didn't know that. It stands for potential hydrogen. See, I didn't know that. Well, every, there we go. Every day's a school day. There you are. But is it the best <laughs> pH system? In the world. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> the pH scale um, is a really important diagnostic tool for measuring um, acidity. So we can take a, a sample of blood, we can analyse it on the unit, get the result in real time. We can either then make some changes to the ventilator, depending on patient need, or we can escalate it to you know 
someone else and it gives us that inf- we've got that information literally at our fingertips that information then um obviously it's because of the development in technology that's allowed you guys to do a lot more medically speaking but i suppose it comes down to the issue of, of monitoring and things of that nature so you've got all this information is it collected autonomously or is it still dependent upon staff doing the work physically looking at these things recording them down well while a lot of the um recording is done electronically there'll be you know monitors and all the monitoring's there the information is taken and the nurse needs to say yep i accept that result it might be flagged up that actually this is outside of the normal values that we would expect like i say because the monitoring is so precise it goes on patient's height weight you know we it's important that we've got all those all that information it's then what we do with the information there might be a value that's a little bit higher a little bit low but if we're expecting that or you know it's still that clinical decision making you know nurses doctors they're still very much needed we can't just go to a fully mechanical ITU where we haven't got any people so the robots haven't taken over just yet I'm glad about that I'm glad about that (laughs) um so yeah but there is that autonomy of you know nurses and you know the whole team making those clinical decisions if we need to make some changes now and then escalate what's what's happening further up that pathway then we can do that. It's obviously very important that we, we've we got the information. So I think that the electronic uh, recording system is, is very good. And, you know, what we can do is we can take down all those observations, but we also need to acknowledge them. We can't just take them all down and do nothing about it. If they're out of certain parameters, we need to be able to say, okay, what are we going to do about that? And so most of the systems that I've ever seen, it gives you the option of, are you okay with this value? If you are, are you sure you're okay with this value? Yeah. So it's that safety net of if this electronic recording equipment is used appropriately, I think it's a really good thing for patients. Yeah. I suppose that's what we see in in clinical negligence cases sometimes is that the machines are giving the the clinicians the relevant information, but then the clinicians aren't either acting upon it or they're not recognising how serious a level or reading is. um, And that's when mistakes can happen. Yeah. And I think that also does come back very much to, you know, a critical care unit isn't the equipment that it's made up of. It's the skill and it's the experience. And so, you know, I think we saw this really with with COVID and all those Nightingale hospitals that got rolled out. And isn't it great that we can get all this equipment? Well, yes, it is, but there was still no staff or there was still a, you know, a lack of staff. And and that's really what it comes down to. And you can't, you can't just build a nurse, you know, like it does, you need the experience and, and the knowledge and, you know, the combination of of drawing on that level of experience and that skill mix and also the bringing in of these electronic records and this extra monitoring you know it's it's a really good thing for the patients i have an understanding of how the unit operates then so it's as you say it's a combination of of highly trained experienced clinicians working together as a team using the best equipment but what does that team look after who do they look after in a cc unit essentially what kind of gets you the ticket into critical care is the level of patient need. So you can be there for any number of uh, clinical reasons. So it could be, you know, quite often not planned. So we get admissions from the outside, within the hospital, but on, on the wards. So if patients are deteriorating, they might well get a referral to be seen by the um, intensive care doctors. And, you know, quite often we will get patients from the wards who've deteriorated. I'd say a lot of the time it's unplanned, so we will get lots of referrals from outside of the hospital. So they might come in via, you know, the ambulance service. That they might come straight from the helipad. They might come from road ambulance, and 
they won't necessarily need to go in via A&E because they don't need that level of assessment. They've already been assessed as needing potentially critical care. So they'll come to us and we can essentially try and sort them out from there. And again, it's all hands on deck. You've got this whole team that sort of swoop in and it's what the patient needs. On that topic as well, we get patients all out of hospital cardiac arrests all come into critical care now. So the sort of plan of care has progressed and we now call patients for 72 hours because essentially if you've had an issue with the heart and the heart stopped, brilliant if you can get the circulation going again, but what we need to protect is is the brain. Because if the heart stopped pumping, you can't get oxygenated blood to the brain and that person could have a a brain injury from that. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, it's great if we can almost kind of fix the problem with the heart, get that going again and, and sort of deal with that. But if you're, what's left is a you know, brain injury, then obviously the implications are far reaching. So what we do is we will cool a patient for 72 hours, but in order to do that comfortably, we will sedate the patient as well. So they now all come into to critical care. Basically, we can get a patient there for whatever reason. They can become more well, they can become more unwell, and you know it fluctuates, it fluctuates day by day but also hour by hour and much less than that you know literally minute by minute and because we are monitoring them so closely you know we've got that real time we can do something about it gotcha you've got effectively the sickest of the sick patients that you're looking after yeah um what happens to those patients under your care then that that do get better so they have a good progression through through your units well like i sort of touched on before we've got essentially three levels of care within the hospital setting so Level three is your sickest patient. You've got a patient who is needing mechanical ventilation or at least multi-organ support. They are needing one-to-one care. So one nurse, one patient, and you know they are really needing that one-to-one. Level two is what would have traditionally been the high dependency unit. So they, they don't need mechanical ventilation, but they may need a little bit more help um, in terms of their breathing. So maybe some oxygen via a face mask, but with a little bit of pressure added to that. And then as they are getting better or they're not as unwell, they're, they're the level one patients and they're essentially your ward-based patients. So they might need um, some IV fluids or they might need something, you know, a little bit of oxygen via a normal face mask, not as close monitoring. Generally, they're involved in their care as well. So they can, you know, hopefully a little bit mobile. And, and then your level zero patient is not in hospital so they're the ones that are at home that's the end game we, yes. we all want to get out of hospital <laughs> yeah. as quickly as we can be that one exactly <laughs> um so in terms of patients going up or down that level of care hopefully they go from being quite unwell to getting better but like i say you know the, the level of need can go up and down traditionally it, it would be that the patient would be in the critical care unit as they would become less dependent on on care they would become a level two patient and they would move to a different area now a physical area yeah yeah Yeah. so they they move to like a separate high dependency unit and i think there's something quite progressive about that in terms of they feel like they're making progress towards home it's good for the the well mental well-being and, and that sort of thing with the bigger regional units that are in specialist units that are being built they have incorporated both elements the critical care unit and the the intensive care unit and the high dependency unit together and so you get both types of patients within the same setting i still think that patients feel like they're making progress because as they make progress towards moving to the ward their bed space becomes less full of equipment and machinery that looks like it's from space. And, you know, it looks a bit more familiar, like a ward 
bed setting um so there might be an armchair there and you know we're going to get you out of bed and you know help you sit in the chair and so you know they do feel like they're you had um, a little quote you mentioned about uh, before we came on, on air about Nanny McPhee. You said there's something that was quite relevant from that film that has quite particular striking relevance yeah. to, to critical care units, you think? What we were discussing earlier was that, um, you know, patients, when they sort of come round from if they've been sedated or if they've been quite sick and then they're, they're getting a little bit better and they're waking up a little bit or, you know, just generally getting better, they're more aware of their surroundings. Now, initially, we tend to find they're not a big fan of critical care. No one really wants to be there. It's not ideal, is it? No, it's not. You know, be the patient on the sofa, be at home, don't be in critical care. And so they're not a massive fan of ours. They don't really want to be there, particularly if they're coming around from anaesthetic. If they've been sedated for a number of days, weeks, or potentially even months, it's a lot for your body to get through. And, And there's us talking to them, saying, can you squeeze my hand? Do you know what we're saying? And, you know, this is where you are. This is what's happened. It's a lot to take in. And so, like I say, they're not a massive fan of ours. They they don't really want to be there. But as they become more aware of their surroundings and, and you know, they've, they're no longer, you know, ventilated and sedated and, and they're much more involved in their care, they come to feel safe in critical care. They come to rely on that level of care that, you know, they know there's a nurse at the, at the end of their bed. You know, there's there's that many people around in critical care that... You know, if you raise an eyebrow as a patient, someone's going to say, are you OK? What, you know, what can I do? What can I do for you? Because of that level of monitoring. And so they get to the point where they don't want to go to the ward and they want to stay where they feel safe. So the Nanny McPhee thing was, um, I think she says something along the lines of, there's something you should understand about the way I work. And that is when you need me but don't want me, then I must stay. When you want me but no longer need me, then I have to go. And so... It's a good quote. Yeah, I, I think like so. Yeah. Have you seen Nana McPhee? I have not. You need to see it. Well, so I've got two kids, so yeah, probably put it at some point in the Put future. it on the list. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that, that level of, you know, when they need us, they don't want us. But you'll be there for them. But we're there for them, whether they like it or not. Yeah. And then when they don't need us anymore, they're free to go. You've got to let them go. So that's if a, if a patient is, is getting better and they have a good journey. But yeah. naturally, you know, from, from your perspective, I, I assume you, you've had the opposite side. And there have been, sadly instances where patients have gone the other way and they haven't had a good outcome and you've had to deal with families and and patients that haven't recovered unfortunately what what has that been like for you it is sadly part and parcel of critical care because not everyone not everything is survivable not every illness not every injury is survivable you know we can we always do our very best and and you know patients really do get the best very best chance but like i say some things just aren't survivable so I think really the key is always communication. My experience is that I've always been part of a a fantastic team where everyone's communicating, you know, whether it's, you know, the the doctors, the physios, the dieticians, we're always talking about what we're doing and and what our role is, why we're here, what we're doing for for the patient. We talk incessantly to the patient, (laughs) you know, whether they're sedated or not. And so, you know, there's, there's that level of communication that's going on all the time. And so, you know, relatives and, and patients, if they're awake, if they're, you know, if they can be part of the 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 communication, are so, and, you know, will involve them as much as they can be in their own care. So whether the news is bad or it's good, hopefully the relatives have got some insight already. Because we're talking to the relatives, the patients all the time, if things aren't going brilliantly, and there's been a bit of a trend of that for the last few days, 
they should know about it already. Because the relative- they can pick up on the clinicians talking and the nurses but talking to But we're actually to talking them. to them as well, yeah. saying, you know, this is what we're going to do. I'm just going to take a little blood sample. We're going to just analyse it. We're going to see what it says. And, you know, if it's not great, you know, they'll know about it. We're not trying to keep secrets. We tell them what we know when we know it. Yeah. And so it's almost that, um, that not quite drip feeding, but you're you're giving the information that you've got when you've got it. So if then you know, we need to have a conversation that really is going to be quite devastating. They've got a bit of a foundation of what's been going on. You know, we we update them daily. The doctors obviously are the ones that are giving them the fundamentals of what's happening. As nurses, we can put the other bits to the picture. Um, So if a doctor needs to have a very serious conversation with the family, lots of communications already happened already. It really is key that, that communication, and presumably as well as, as well as being having those conversations from a clinical perspective, um, you will also provide that emotional and, and support and comfort to the families as well. So as well as clinicians, you're also affects and um, counsellors and, and bereavement counsellors too. Yeah, a bit of everything, really. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really important because it's someone's absolute worst nightmare happening in real time. They you need know, to be supported through that. Absolutely, that is someone's mother or sister or uncle like that is someone's really important person right there and you know we've all got our our people our important people and so you know there is a compassion there that you can already you know how someone feels about their own relative and it's you know we're we're part of that and obviously we we've got a role to to do as a critical care nurse or a clinician but it's part of you know the family are part of that following on from that that you know the, the terrible circumstances that can happen to families when they lose a loved one i know that there can be some some good that comes out of it so i know that um on critical care units you work quite extensively with organ transplanting teams as well so have you had any experience of that yeah yeah i think you know it goes hand in hand with death um sadly that is something that happens in critical care um the transplant teams are absolutely superb and as as sad as the whole situation obviously someone needs to have died for that to take place um communication all the way along is key so in terms of communicating what the patient's wishes were and you know what the family's wishes are we've now moved over to an opt-out system the law has has changed um in that there's a presumption that you will be an organ donor unless the patient says that's not my wishes I don't want that or if the family say we don't believe that's what the patient wanted Um, so it's now moved over to that opt-out system I think it's quite important to to understand that there is such a thing as a good death um, which does sound quite strange but it's just giving people that space and that time to to be with their relative and I mean, I keep going back to communication. That is a big part of it. I suppose one situation that stands out for me, and and I think it's because when it feels like it could be quite close to home, you know, youngest gentleman, three children, uh, quite unexpected end of of his life. Um, He wasn't actually appropriate for organ donation, sadly, with with why he was actually in critical care. But but what we were able to do was, you know, I was able to discuss with mum, she actually wanted the children she wasn't sure initially did she want the children to come in or not come and say bye to dad they did end up coming in three young children and we spent the afternoon together they shared stories about dad we were all together with dad we did handprints we took a lock of hair each for the children to keep and you know it was that time that was as sad as it was 
there were probably as many laughs as there were tears because it was just a time to be together with with their you know with dad and um the whole team the clinical team were just absolutely fantastic and you know everyone really does come together and and you know we feel the sadness and you know one of the nurses we had those chocolates on the unit so you know one of the children said oh these these are dad's favorite like, okay well he took a little bite and then we, we put a little bit of chocolate on dad's lips and you know it's that kind of it was just familiar and there was some almost normality in that very strange situation and the children kept his pillowcase and you know we got paint all over the bedding when we did handprints and things and the kids thought it was hilarious and um you know and like I say there were there were tears but there were laugh there was laughter as well and you know the last thing that we were able to do was we we moved dad over slightly in the bed and the kids got in for a last cuddle and you know it was really special and you know like I say there is is such a thing as a good death and it's that death with dignity it's giving our patients the dignity that they deserve whatever stage of the care you know the journey that, that they're on you guys are amazing i'm just going to say that right off the bat that's a, f- a fantastic thing that you guys can do give a bit of humor then on this point here so um let's talk about some urban myths answer me this then i've, I've heard on the grapevine that there's a story and um, that on a lot of intensive care units the patient in bed or bay 13 will always die Ooh. at midnight on a friday I, I don't know. I've, I don't know if you've heard this at all. Or I haven't. Tell me haven't. more. Well, I, I, full disclosure: my mum uh, used to work in intensive care for like twenty-five years, so I'm pretty sure that it's come from her, and I'm pretty sure that she's fibbing. Um, but she always said that this, they have this thing every Friday. You could guarantee the patient in bay thirteen would die, regardless of what their medical condition. They were they were a goner. And what it actually transpired um, was that at around you know, during the night shift, around midnight, the cleaner would come onto the wards and would pull out the plugs to the ventilator to. <laughs> to plug in their vacuum cleaner and so yeah it, it's a lovely story a hilarious story I'm hoping that that's not true I mean have you seen anything like that <laughs> no I haven't <laughs> good so I'll make two points on that Adam uh, <laughs> thankfully uh, ventilators have uh, probably backup after backup after backup uh, they have their own internal battery system so I think we're fairly safe to say that that wouldn't that myth actually... is busted yeah but the second point is there'd probably be a nice clean uh, intensive care unit nice oh, clean every, floor every Friday always every Friday <laughs> by bed 13 <laughs> alright so that's that's a load of old cobblers then um, although having said that I was going to say you've got to have something you've wow. got to have some stories it's not as uh, not as good as the Hoover story but um, so I have looked around the critical care units many times when there's a full moon or, you know, when it's all thunderstormy mm. and felt like nearly every patient in the unit has had a brain hemorrhage. So subarachnoid hemorrhage, I think it's got to do with the pressures and things like that. So it, whether it just felt like every patient was there because they'd had a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So whether, you know, the, the pressures and if they had like an aneurysm and then they've all popped, I don't know. And this is all due to the the, the, the moon effect? Yeah. So th- is that like scientifically proven or is it just your observation? That's my observation. Oh, so okay. my advice is be that level zero patient and sit on your sofa at home. And if the weather's a bit weird, just relax. Relax. <laughs> yeah, stay at home. <laughs> don't go out on a full moon <laughs> yeah. is, your, is your advice. Don't go out. Thanks, Steph. Um, well, in that case, we'll, we'll wrap it up. But just for a final thought, then what do you think the future holds for for critical care units i think that the the need for critical care units is always going to keep going up i think you know expectations of probably families patients some clinical teams is that everything's treatable and survivable which you know of course attempts are made but that you know as we've discussed it's not always survivable um i think that you know advances in 
in research and medicine and, and things like that are always going to make way for there being more need for, for critical care. But as we discussed before, you know, it's all good and well having the machinery. You need, need the, people. the people. need the people. That's yeah. what it's all about. You can't build them. Thanks to Adam and Steph for lending their expertise. More proof that lawyers don't bite. If you need legal help from either of them, please get in touch through lblaw.co.uk. If you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialist for an upcoming episode, please let me know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you found the conversations helpful, please remember to follow, review and share the episodes. And don't forget to go back and check out some of the shows from the other seasons. Speak to you soon. That was the Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.